You're listening to Bits of Me, the podcast about women's bodies, all the things we should know about them, and all the stories behind them. I'm Linnea Dunn, and I'm your host. An estimated 5% of women suffer from a condition called PMDD, with symptoms such as depression, rage, and fatigue. In this episode of Bits of Me, I talk to one of them, Social Democrats councillor and soon-to-be mother of three, Catherine Stocker. As is often the case with those who have PMDD, Catherine was misdiagnosed as bipolar and she did numerous stints in mental hospital before getting the correct diagnosis and finding the treatment that worked for her. Do you want to start by telling me about the O'Connell Street incident and kind of that time in your late teens when things were quite bleak? you? Yeah, so I suppose um, at that stage I'd probably been dealing with whatever it was um, for about three years and I just felt completely out of control. Like, you know, I'd, I'd had various diagnoses already so when I was 17, I was diagnosed with depression. And then um, at 19, I was diagnosed as bipolar. And none of it seemed to fit quite right for me because depression clinically tends to be something that kind of lasts for longer periods and is sort of static in what it is. Whereas mm. for me, it was very up and down and I'd have periods of being okay and then periods of being and the the main feeling for me at that time was of being out of control like beyond my own control yeah um and I think that incident was like all of it's a bit hazy for me as well which is strange you think I'd remember these kind of things in in detail and I didn't and I don't but, uh, you know, I, I was obviously in the middle of one of the episodes of feeling kind of quite out of control. And a lot of the time at that time, I dealt with, um, I suppose, feelings of kind of despair and, and um, the intensity of my feelings through fairly self-destructive behaviour. So mm. I would drink quite heavily in what I would now see as an attempt to self-medicate, essentially, mm. or to numb the the badness or to lift myself out of the badness. Um, so we'd probably been out for the night and I got very distressed and I ended up sitting down in front of the traffic on O'Connell Street, which does seem a tad melodramatic um, now that... Uh, <laughs> Now, now that I think of it, but um, at the time it seemed like a perfectly normal response to the level of kind of emotional distress I was feeling. Um, yeah. And then the police obviously came and, and took me away. Uh, so we, I was brought to Store Street and I was there for some period of time. And uh, eventually I saw a doctor in the guard station and I managed to convince the doctor that you know, I was seeing my own psychiatrist and that I would go back to her and deal with her. And um, the guards were kind of happy enough with that and I was allowed to go home. Um, 
but yeah, like I just had years at that stage of being kind of completely um off off the rails essentially. Like mm. I mean I suppose I'd moved to Dublin. All of this had started when I was about 16. And when I was 17, I just started refusing to go to school. Like, I couldn't do it anymore. And I'd had about two months of not going to school. And then I moved to Dublin um, in the hope, I think, that I would go to school here. And I have more friends here at that stage. Or I had some friends here. Mm. Um, And... I I didn't go to school mostly. Uh, it was kind of a, a running joke that my principal would ring my mother on an almost daily basis saying, you know, Mrs. Hannon, your daughter hasn't uh, hasn't turned up for school today. And my mother sitting in Cavan would go, what am I meant to do about it? Um, because yeah. th- there was no controlling me like I was. I You know, I'd gone kind of almost overnight from being a straight A student who got everything right to being completely out of control. And um, just because the level of distress I was dealing with was something I was completely unequipped to deal with, you know, and the kind of the people I was being referred to to try and help with that were not helping and not understanding and not kind of... um offering any solutions that worked for me so you know I kind of chose my own solutions and in retrospect they were probably fairly self-destructive fairly harmful solutions but um, at the time they were the only coping strategies I had you Mm. know and I mean so you'd been diagnosed bipolar at this point um what happens then were you put on medication at that stage I'd been put on medication a few years before that. I'd been put on antidepressants when I was 17 and uh, I was first hospitalised then when I was 18 um, in my leaving search year. Um, And then I, I came off whatever medication I was on. And then when I went into college, I started seeing the psychiatrist in Trinity and she's the one who diagnosed me as bipolar and I was put on meds for bipolar disorder yeah um so they're quite quite heavy duty medications as you can imagine um and they involved a lot of kind of ongoing testing because they can do damage to you know your thyroid function and your kidney function and all of those kind of things so you have to have regular blood tests to Mm. um to deal with that so i mean i was on those for a few years um and they didn't really do any of the things they were meant to do. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't make the situation better. So, I mean, a lot of the the distress I went through, like um, when I was on the when I was on those meds again around when I was nineteen or twenty, I was very distressed, and I I, I hesitate to call it an overdose because I, I'm not sure that was fully my intention I think I was just in a state of despair and couldn't see any alternative it's it's hard to explain anyway I I I took a bunch of these pills that I was on Mm. at the time and my flatmate at the time rang her mother who was a nurse and her mother said to her no you have to call an ambulance so Mm. You know, uh, they called an ambulance and I was taken off to the hospital. 
uh, I gather kicking and screaming and um, uh, you know it wasn't I hadn't taken a, a very large volume or whatever so it wasn't in any way life-threatening um, I I don't like the phrase a cry for help and I don't think that's what it was because it wasn't external it wasn't that I wanted someone to intervene or I wanted help I just wanted not to be dealing with the thing I'd been dealing with for mm. three years at that point with no real relief, you know? Mm. Um, so. And and it was on, when you went on the pill then, that things became quite a bit better, am I right? Yeah, so when I was 21, I met uh, the man who is now my husband. And <laughs> uh, I went on, uh, I'd, I'd been on the pill before, but I went on a particular pill which... Uh, I think some of the men's magazines at the time were saying like, you know, your girlfriend should be on this pill because it'll make her a kind of more chill human being. Nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. Nice. But um, uh, yeah, so I I went on uh, this particular pill, uh, Yasmin, I think at the time, and I didn't connect the two. Like I thought it was that I'd met Matthew and my life was kind of more stable and I'd taken a year out of college to kind of get myself together a bit. And then I went back, back to college. I was living with Matthew. Life was just much better, much more stable. Mm. I won't say there were no difficulties, but certainly nothing on the scale of what I'd had before. But I didn't connect that to the contraceptive pill because why would you? Yeah. I'd, you know, why would you like it's not a connection that people automatically make um so i'd come off the other meds i was on i i kind of did that periodically i they didn't really work so my compliance with them wasn't terribly high and that period from when i was sort of 21 to 28 or so was fairly calm not much by way of incident I was pretty happy. I finished college. I worked for a few years in a radio station. I, you know, things were Mm. not perfect, but much, much better. Um, And then when I was 28, I left the job I was in at the time and decided to go back to college to do a master's that I wanted to do. Mm. And I got it into my head that I shouldn't be on the pill because this was introducing artificial hormones into my body and whatever, whatever, Mm. whatever. So I came off it. And from there, things started to deteriorate really badly, really quite quickly. Um, But again, I just didn't make the connection because a number of things had happened. I'd left my job and gone back to college you know, there were a lot of kind of changes in my life and various things that happened around the time. So again, I just didn't, didn't connect these things at all. Yeah. Um, so I ended up then in 2010 going into hospital. I was, I was extremely distressed and I had been extremely distressed for months. Um, so I went in, uh, to, uh, John God's and, the doctor there was very much like, you're absolutely fine. You can do the Irish Times crossword. What the hell are you doing here? Um, so, and you see, there, there was a bit of that when I interacted with doctors, because the thing about PMDD is it's cyclical. Like for me, well, f- 
for, for most women, symptomatically, PMDD happens bet- during what they call your luteal phase. So yeah. from ovulation to when your period starts. Yeah. But what that could mean is I could be in a state of really extreme distress for two weeks and then kind of be grand again. Yeah. You know, and that doesn't fit the pattern of any mental illness very well because they tend to have more consistency. Like even bipolar doesn't tend to um cycle that rapidly you know it tends to be longer stretches but I suppose it was their best guess at what was going on um, mm. I had a whole series of hospitalizations then because the woman in John God's was not helpful at all I was bounced back to the psychiatrist in Trinity who was adamant that they had to keep me in a hospital and work out what was going on so I was sent to another hospital um like again, the the medication and whatever didn't do much for me, but probably the six six odd weeks I spent in that hospital helped me kind of uh, wind down from some of the very extreme distress I'd been feeling over the cu- couple of years previous to that. Yeah. Um. And that went on for a few years. Like I I was in and out of hospital in those years those kind of three or four years maybe five times uh ranging from two weeks days to three months days wow um and i have been on pretty much every psychogenic medication you can imagine i've been on a wide variety of antidepressants mood stabilizers Mm. antipsychotics you name it um Mm. And I suppose like part of this is very personal and I'm I'm a little nervous about talking about it because you do worry that people will, will judge you if that's public information. But part of it is me trying to say PMDD can be really extreme, you know, yeah. like people think, oh, PMS, how bad can it be? And mm. I suppose I'm trying to say it can be really, really bad. And for me... It was at the point where I'd have the two weeks that were bad and often still I would engage in fairly self-destructive behaviours to try and cope with that. I would drink a lot or whatever. And then I'd have the fallout from that in my life over the following two weeks. Mm. So things were never really good. Things kind of, you know, the the bad weeks kind of melded into what should have been the good weeks in ways where I was... Or like when I was bad, I would just sleep and sleep and sleep. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't go to work or I wouldn't be able to function or I wouldn't be able to do whatever. And all that stuff would catch up with you in what should be good times. Mm. So, I mean, I suppose I, by, by 2014, that that was when I had the, the longest stretch I've ever had in hospital, which was the, the three months in St. Pat's. And I came out of that kind of determined to... Uh, get pregnant which would seem like a strange choice to a lot of people (laughs) but um I I wanted a baby and I suppose like a lot of the people around me might have felt like I I shouldn't do that like it wasn't responsible or given how bumpy things had been for me that it it wasn't the best choice but you know my 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 instincts such as they were were telling me it was the thing to do and luckily my husband is very supportive and what he later said to me was 
I had seen you lose so much from this illness. You know, I'd, I'd dropped out of a PhD program I was in. Um, I dropped out of a master's program in equality studies that I was doing that I mm. loved, but just couldn't. Like I, I ended up being hospitalized through that a few times. Um, I'd, I'd left jobs I really liked because things were so out of control. So I suppose he was saying to me, I'd, I'd seen you lose so many things that you, yeah. you really wanted and that meant a lot to you and to lose the, the prospect of motherhood on top of that was uh, not something he wanted me to, to have to deal with. So yeah, like for, for good or for evil, I came out of hospital and got pregnant um, yeah. and, uh, I, I was remarkably well all through the pregnancy. It was the first time since I was maybe 16 that I felt entirely like myself for a wow. long period of time. Mm. And like I had control over myself and like things were as they should be, you know? Um, yeah. Now, the one thing I will throw in here, and it's been very helpful to me during that pregnancy and since... In that hospital stay, that 2014 hospital stay, I, I got connected with a psychologist who brought me into a programme of uh, what they call compassion-focused therapy. Yeah. And compassion-focused therapy is, like, I, I've, I've been through all the various therapies. I've been in the kind of very in-depth, uh, more kind of psychoanalytic stuff. I have done the kind of short bursts of cognitive behavioural therapy, all that. Yeah. From... For me, at least, compassion-focused therapy made a huge difference. And I suppose some of it was around not blaming yourself for the coping strategies you adopted when they were the only thing available to you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, that you were faced with this situation. These were the tools you had at hand. Were they the best thing you could have done? Yeah, possibly in that situation, they were the best thing you could have done because yeah. you didn't have alternatives. Don't blame yourself for the coping strategies you've developed over the years to deal with the distress you're in kind of mm. thing, mm. Um, which is a message that has a lot of meaning for me. Yeah, um, I can see why. So, uh, yeah, I was well throughout that pregnancy, which was great. And uh, now I did see the uh, the psychiatrist in Hollis Street the perinatal psychiatrist in Hollis Street through that pregnancy mm. because I was still on bipolar meds at that stage so so you can stay on that medication when you're pregnant uh, all the way through my pregnancy with um with with my first I was on lithium and uh, an antidepressant yeah um yeah. there are additional risks with lithium but the judgment mm. call that was made at that time by my doctors in consultation with me was that the risks of coming off medication were greater than the risks yeah. of uh, staying on it. And they do, they did additional testing. So it was quite an anxious time in some ways because I was worried about what the impact of uh, these drugs would be. Mm. I had to have constant blood tests for the lithium throughout the pregnancy to make sure the levels were at the right level in my blood and all of that kind of thing. Mm. Um. So it was it was an anxious time in that sense, but it was otherwise great. Like, um, like I I hadn't experienced as I say in years, and uh, gave birth to Martha. Still pretty happy. 
Um, I couldn't couldn't even try and breastfeed because to um, be on that medication, it would be completely and totally toxic um, for yeah. a baby. So uh, that was a big loss. That was the one thing I was hugely upset about because... Like for me, I have a mother who breastfed all six of her children. I have a sister who breastfed her four children. It's my my friends would all. It's, it was something I expected to have happen, mm. and then it didn't, you know, or it couldn't. Um. So I mean, through that period of time, the two psychiatrists I was seeing, were unbeknownst to me, having a kind of a fight with each other because my original psychiatrist thought the bipolar diagnosis probably wasn't quite right but didn't know what okay. to replace it with yeah and the psychiatrist in Hollis Street was who was brilliant and amazing like, I've been really lucky I've had very good doctors both of these doctors that I'm speaking of are very good doctors who've shown me a lot of compassion but the one in Hollis Street was saying you know this woman is clearly hugely upset about not being able to breastfeed because she's on this medication and if we're not sure the diagnosis is right then we're not even sure if she should be on this medication, mm. you know? So I, I was more or less well, you know? Um, and then come the... So Martha was born in January 2015. Yeah. And in the middle of April 2015, I had a complete meltdown. And I called my husband and he came home from work because he recognised the signs of this when it was happening. Yeah. And he knew it hadn't happened in you know, over a year at that stage and it, it here it was. Yeah. Um and I was so frightened. Um because I thought, you know, this is this is done, this is over. But uh it wasn't. And two weeks later I got my period for the first time since I'd given birth. And all the pieces just kind of clicked in my mind at that point. It was like, this is hormonal. This is, yeah. I haven't been unwell through the pregnancy because I'm not having my normal cycles. And the minute they return, here mm. this is. And for the first time, it was blindingly obvious. And it's one of those things where once you know it, it's hard to unsee. But it yeah. wasn't obvious at any time up to that point, you know? No. Yeah. Um. So, so you realised then that it was probably hormonal and what presumably you went to speak to your psychiatrist then or, or who did you, where did you go next? So I tried saying to the GP that I thought it was hormonal and he thought maybe I should see an endocrinologist and maybe not and basically didn't have any real kind of grasp of that. I, I said it to the psychiatrist and he said, mm, your hormones could be making the problem worse but not yeah. that the they were essentially the underlying problem, you know? Um, and nobody had any suggestions of anything that could be done to actually help with that, you know? Um, so I went away and, you know, it's a funny thing because they say, oh, Dr. Google and don't use Dr. Google and whatever. And I've, I've listened to some of the podcasts with some of your other guests, like, Frankly, often and particularly if you're a woman dealing with a problem that isn't taken seriously, you're your best friend when it comes to research because, you know, you yeah. know what's going on for you. You know what you're dealing with. You know how it manifests and what the situation is. And, you know, as long as you're kind of capable of doing vaguely reputable research, 
you're your best bet, basically. Yeah, and I um, mean, of course, it's not ideal. Of course, we shouldn't go to Google, but I mean, it's obviously it's plugging a gap, so it's not. <laughs> you know, it's there yeah. because we're not getting diagnoses and advice and all this stuff elsewhere. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like when you know when you have no other alternatives, so. I went off and I finally came up with this term PMDD and I was able to find a doctor in the UK who um, specialised in this. And I was very conscious because I'd had years of dealing with doctors of various kinds um, that I wanted somebody really reputable that they would have to take seriously. Like it couldn't be somebody my other doctors would see as a quack or as a whatever. Um, Yeah. I found this guy in the UK called Dr. Michael Craig and he runs the a kind of a female hormone reproductive depression clinic in the Maudsley. So the Maudsley is like the UK's largest psychiatric training hospital. Mm. And this guy is, um, he is trained, he's the only doctor I know of that is qualified as both a psychiatrist and a gynecologist. Okay. So he's kind of uniquely positioned to deal with you know this particular issue yeah um so I went over to him and I did very long meeting with him appointment with him um over a few hours where he went through all of my history and I'd been doing charts up for the few months running up to that of kind of charting my mood to my cycles every day um, and actually, that's the number one piece of advice I would give to anybody who thinks they have PMDD or severe PMS. It is get one of those period tracker apps that you can also yeah. put mood symptoms into and track it for two to three months. And that's kind of your your that's the fundamental that they use for diagnosis, essentially. Mm. So I went over to him. I had this very long consultation with him. He was fairly certain that you know, this was PMDD or severe PMS, whatever you want to call it. Um, And he sent me back to Dublin with a letter for my GP to prescribe me what I needed to to deal with that. Um, So I'm lucky. I have a very good GP who is also very um, uh, willing to... You know, there are there are GPs who might have opposed the idea of this letter from this guy in England suggesting these yeah. hormone treatments. And yeah. thankfully, mine didn't. Mm. Um, I started on the hormone treatment. He recommended... It worked sort of, but again, not brilliantly. Um, mm. And that's because often, like with these treatments, you need to increase and decrease doses and twerk, yeah. tweak them around to get them right and whatever. And the problem was I was here in Dublin and he was in the UK. And, you know, there was no real way of me attending him at a clinic the way other patients would have. We had one sort of online consultation and it just didn't work very well. And he misunderstood things I was saying through that mm. format. And uh, he changed the treatment slightly, but it, the kind of normal back and forth that should have been possible with a doctor I was in the same country with. Like, also, say the first time I saw him, I think, um, I, obviously I had to fly to the UK. I, I paid to stay there for a night and I think the consultation was over 500 quid. The, the, yeah. 
And this is this guy isn't private. This guy works within the NHS. So I was paying that money mm. to the NHS as an external yeah. um, patient, not to, to him, you know. Um, mm. And then the online consultation was, I don't know, 350 quid or whatever. So any time I spoke to him was going to be massively expensive. And this was money I didn't yeah. have, you know. Uh, yeah, there were problems with kind of trying to tweak the medication and get things right. And then my own psychiatrist back here thought I should come off the meds I was on, which I, I needed to do. But obviously that was a process in and on itself. If you've been yeah. on something for years and you need to withdraw off it, that had to be monitored. And I ended up back in hospital for that to happen. Um, mm. And you had a baby at this point. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah. Uh, like I was only in the hospital maybe a week or two, uh, two weeks probably, uh, for that to happen. But it, at the time, I was very distressed about having to leave, uh, my little girl. You know, but, mm. um, I had fairly awful withdrawal symptoms, so I didn't yeah. have all that much choice in the matter. Um, so, I came out of there. I was I was using what he'd recommended, which was an estrogen gel and a progesterone pessary. And the idea was that that would suppress my cycles. So I shouldn't have been having cycles. Actually, I wasn't using the progesterone at that stage because the progesterone can be problematic. So the idea was that I'd use the gel for just a few months to suppress my cycles. And then we'd try and add back in the progesterone. Um, okay. So I was using this gel. And the idea is that that should have stopped my cycles. Mm. And I came out of hospital again and we went on a holiday to Portugal and I was in bits. I couldn't get out of bed for the entire holiday. I was absolutely awful. Oh. And uh, I was like, why, why is this so bad? Is this still the withdrawal? What is it? What is it? And this is what you're asking yourself all the time. What is it? What is causing this horror? Um, yeah. And then, of course, the period arrived, which shouldn't have happened if the medication was at the yeah. right dose because it should have suppressed the cycle. So I was like, OK, so it's this again. I see. Um, and I could have gone back to him and gotten the dose adjusted. But I, I, being the insane person I am, decided to have another baby instead. I was like, well, listen, <laughs> last time I had a baby, I felt great for a year. Let's, let's fire that let's one. Let's just up. be pregnant forever. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. All the Pretty babies. Much. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, that, that, that's not a, a great long-term solution, it must be said. I did a difficult pregnancy with Theo for a whole variety of other reasons. But um, after, at the end of that pregnancy, I, I kind of veered into quite bad postnatal depression very soon after he was born. Um, and the thing is, I suppose, for, for people who don't know about PMDD, they probably don't know it's there's a misconception that it's a hormone imbalance and it's absolutely not a hormone imbalance. It's not something you no. can pick up on a blood test. It's not whatever. Um, what they've now discovered is that it is a, a heightened brain sensitivity to normal hormonal fluctuations. So basically yeah. your your brain completely overreacts to the hormone fluctuations that like every woman of childbearing age has, you know? Yeah. Um, so as you can imagine, after birth is also a particularly difficult time because if it's hormone fluctuations that yeah. your body is reacting to, then, you know. There's a lot of that going on. <laughs> yeah. So 
So I went back to my GP who put me back on an antidepressant and I also started taking the pill Yaz, which is the only pill that I know of anyway. Um, I think it's licensed in the US for the treatment of PMDD and it has a particular type of progesterone in it that because often women with PMDD react particularly badly to progesterone. So mm. whatever, I, I don't understand the science behind it. But anyway, this one is meant to not trigger that terrible reaction. Um, mm. So I was on that and I take that continuously. So I take that without any kind of break, uh, which is what you're meant to do for PMDD. Um, mm. And as long as I take that continuously, I'm I'm pretty much fine. Um, like I, I have ups and downs. I have periods when things aren't perfect, but I don't have any major catastrophe, yeah. must go to hospital kind of episodes. Yeah. Um, so I took that up until recently and I am, I'm now pregnant again, defaulting to the old solution. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I presume once I've had this baby... And all of that, I'll have to go back on that pill. So I suppose the thing about PMDD, there's, there's a few ways it can be treated. Um, there's antidepressants, which do work. I, I take an antidepressant as well. Um, mm. There's the pill. So the first, the kind of two frontline treatments are probably the antidepressants and the pill. And that's what you start yeah. off with. Then the next step, if that doesn't work, is the estrogen and progesterone that I was on at one stage a few years back and that's to try and again stop your cycle if that doesn't work they can give you injections which are called GnRH injections that shut down your cycle but those are problematic because you have to have and a lot of these treatments are problematic for the same reason you have to have add back progesterone if you have a womb because otherwise you're at risk of ovarian cancer so yeah. or endometrial cancer or what yes some variety of lady bits cancer i can't can't quite remember the details <laughs> that's a technical uh, technical term <laughs> yeah um and an awful lot of women react react very badly women with P- pmdd react very badly to the ad back progesterone so it causes mm. the same problem you're trying to stop in the first place so yeah. that's why women get to the point where for a lot of women the only solution is a full hysterectomy and bilateral salivingo oophorectomy, I believe it's called, basically where they take everything out. So it's not enough to just take out your your uh, uterus. They have to take out the ovaries as well because they're obviously what are making the hormones and the hormones are the problem. So And would you go into early menopause then? Yeah. 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 So, mm. I mean... That's a tough road as well because you you do go into early menopause and then there's the battle Mm. with getting kind of HRT right to stop your bone density deteriorating and all of that sort of thing. Mm. So it's not a it's not a silver bullet either, you know. Um, How do you feel now sitting with the what you might call the solution in your hand other than pregnancy, but the, the, the pill and looking back? at everything that you went through and I know that it's quite common to be misdiagnosed bipolar when you suffer from PMDD um I mean what do you what do you make of all this and how does it feel now looking back it makes me very sad to be honest because I kind of I look at a 16 17 18 19 year old me I was so distressed and I was so miserable and so 
unhappy and I lost so much in so many different ways. And yet the solution was so bloody simple. Like for, it's not for everyone with PMDD, but for me, it would have been, mm. would have been so bloody simple. Um, so part of me feels very kind of sad for what that, that younger version of me went through and the level of, the level of self-doubt as well. Like you, you think, is there really anything wrong with me? Am I making this up? Am I losing my mind? Am I, you know, the, the level mm. of self-questioning mm. that I had as well. Um, and as I say, I, I lost a lot of things. Like I, I withdrew from two degree programs I was in. Um, in 2016, I left my job, uh, which I loved, um, just because I'd had so many hospitalizations on and off and whatever in the course of it that I couldn't realistically it didn't seem fair for me to stay there you know when mm. I was I was in and out and in and out and in and out and I felt like I should kind of step away from it and take time to try and sort out the problem before going back to to a kind of standard workplace I suppose um so yeah, there's that. And then there's another part of me that thinks, you know, and I, I don't believe the sort of the, the bollocks of whatever doesn't kill you, make you stronger or whatever. I think that's a, a terrible approach no. to life. Yeah. But, but I do think there's something in, you know, I have a level of sort of self-insight and then a level of empathy or compassion that I mightn't have otherwise if I I certainly wouldn't have the level of self-insight I have if I hadn't had to spend years delving into the recesses of my brain trying to work out you know what exactly was going on and yeah I think it has made me very slow to judge other people ever across a whole range of criteria just because you really don't know what's happening for someone or why they're acting in the way they are, Um, you know, so Mm. there's that. I'm wondering about that, like when it comes to other people's judgment, I mean, I know how we talk about PMS and a lot of the joking that goes on when you're talking about feeling a bit so-and-so and a bit crazy for lack of a better term when um you know because of your period um so when you talk about pmdd then do you think that like do people take seriously or what do people make of it what's the kind of what are the perceptions that you've come across i think probably the vast majority of people don't take it seriously because they just don't understand what it is and you try and explain it to them and they're just like okay so a kind of severe pms well you know so be it we all get a bit of that, don't we? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I think the people close to me do take it seriously, like kind of, you know, my, my husband, my mother or my sister, etc., because they have seen the absolutely sort of catastrophic effects it has on my ability mm. to function as a human being at the most basic of levels, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And I think there's just, there's there's nowhere near enough discussion or recognition um I, I i think it's a weird thing in society you know we're, we're afraid to acknowledge even just regular pms or whatever or like i've been talking to a few women recently who are in perimenopause and that's a whole other thing and uh, you know a lot of that yeah. looks similar to pmdd for women who go through it very badly and 
you know, you're expected to kind of just to carry on and there's minimal, you know, societal um, recognition of what you're going through in that. And women are very, very reluctant to draw attention to it because, you know, we feel like if we say, you know, this is happening to me essentially because of my hormones, then we're saying I am in yeah. some way less capable or less reliable or less whatever. Yeah. You know, women are very reluctant to um bring up or speak about or try and get any recognition for the effects their hormones have on them because they're they're frightened of being seen as less somehow uh, because of it you know which is yeah and I, w- I wonder as well if there's something about the fact that because it's natural because we we're born with these hormones um so then you're meant to just get on with it because it's not technically a problem you know, like it, it's it's something that women go through. And so we just suck it up because it's part of being a woman, you know? Yeah. And I think that happens across an awful lot of conditions. Like I know I, I'm very fortunate I've never had to deal with this myself, but I'm very close to some people who've had to deal with very bad endometriosis. And again, like yeah. women go through years of pain that nothing gets done about because that's just part of being a woman and sure, get on with it and... You know, you're a moaner if you like actually try and uh, address it, you know. Yeah. But I do think like I've listened to some of your, your other guests, your other podcasts as well. And there's a kind of there is that common thread of of having to leave the country to get diagnosed, you yeah. know. So um, like I have a, um, a family member who's just come back from London from being treated for endometriosis by a doctor over there. Um, and obviously I had to go over myself to get a diagnosis and like I'm in a lot of sort of online Facebook PMDD support groups and whatever and some people do talk about some doctors now in Ireland who will recognise what it is but it's a bit like chasing the unicorn you know it's like there might be this doctor in this clinic who Mm. may or may not you know so I wonder is it something we're particularly bad with in Ireland that you know um there's just it's it's just so hard as a woman to get taken seriously like my experience of of working out that it was hormonal and trying to say this to a range of different doctors and all of them essentially being like yeah and what about it like yeah yeah there's nothing we can or will do about that you know um, so in your opinion, as somebody who has personal experience of this, as well as professional expertise, you know, in that you work in politics and you know a lot about how these various systems work. Um, why would you say that it is that it's so hard to get a diagnosis and to get the correct diagnosis? Or what are we what are we missing here? Oh, like, I think the vast majority of doctors in Ireland don't even know that PMDD exists. Like, I would I would put that well into the 90 percent. Um, so, mm. I mean, what we're missing is a whole level of recognition and education. And that is slowly happening more so outside Ireland. But like, it's only in the last year or two that the World Health Organization has specifically listed PMDD as a condition. 
and it lists it as a genitourinary condition primarily. So there's a side mention of it under the mental health kind of category because so many of the symptoms present as mental health symptoms. Yeah. But it is essentially a, a gynecological condition rather mm. than a mental health condition. So that's step one. Even if you can convince your GP that there is something wrong, your GP is likely to refer you to a psychiatrist. And a psychiatrist is actually probably not who should you should be treated by for this. You mm. should be treated by a gynecologist. Um, so that's that's the first step that goes wrong. Doctors know so little about it. Like I remember talking to my own psychiatrist, who's a, good, a very good doctor and a very compassionate man, um, when I was first diagnosed. And he was basically saying, you know, I, I know nothing about this. I've never come across it before. Um you know, I have tried to li- liaise with colleagues in kind of gynecology over issues in the past and found they don't want to liaise with me in any way, shape or form. Um, and like if a practicing psychiatrist of however many years of, you know, practice and expertise and whatever has, has never come across this, mm. uh, you know, what what hope do you, do you stand? Like they can't diagnose something they're completely unaware of the existence of basically and so like the first line on this now that it is in the i think it's called the the icd um, in which is the the kind of who bible of diagnoses Mm. hopefully there will be some effort to actually you know we need to be training gps on this and what it is because my suspicion is there are very large numbers of women out there misdiagnosed with either bipolar disorder or with borderline personality disorder, yeah. which women get diagnosed with at a much, much greater rate than men do. Yeah. Um, who are actually dealing with hormone symptoms that aren't being kind of recognised or acknowledged in any way. Um, there are great kind of advocacy groups now campaigning uh, on the PMDD issue. There's a Make PMDD Visible group and um, there's the International Association for PMDD and... They're trying to raise awareness. They have online directories of like kind of doctors in your area who may be aware this exists, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is really sad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. Like we're all trying to hunt down this like, you know, the two people in the country who are yeah. aware that this uh, is a condition and who are willing to treat it appropriately. Um so I, I don't know. Like, I think it's just a huge education piece. But the first thing has to be the education of medical professionals, because so many women that I've seen in support groups and whatever work out themselves that they have it. But they go to their GP and their GP is completely clueless, you know, mm. or they don't know where they should be being referred to or what kind of doctor can help them or, yeah. you know, so it's. Uh, like, for instance, when I visited Michael Craig, the specialist in the UK, he was like, I don't understand why they're not treating this in Ireland because they have the same treatment guidelines we have. So the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology print a set of treatment guidelines for severe PMS um, or PMDD. It's often called severe PMS rather than PMDD because PMDD originally was more the american term for what it was so mm. in an irish british context it's often called severe pms okay um i think a lot of a lot of women prefer the term pmdd because they feel it sort of validates their experience more yeah. that it is something separate and different um but 
for anybody who feels they might have this and wants to look up something about how it's treated and all of that, actually, the first place to go is those Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology guidelines on treating severe PMS because they're absolutely great and they will tell you, you know, what kind of treatment strategy should be adopted. And in my experience, like women need to go into their GP having that to hand because you may well have to do the work of educating your doctor, Mm. Um, you know. That was Catherine Stocker on Bits of Me. If you're enjoying Bits of Me, please share, subscribe, rate and review and follow Bits of Me underscore podcast on Instagram to get all the news. If you have a story you'd like to share, get in touch with a direct message on Instagram or email info at Thanks for listening.